0: Hello and welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. My name is Danielle Sands and I'm a Fellow at the Forum and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event in which we think about religious art. The relationship between religion and art is ancient and complex, varying across religious traditions and cultures. We'll consider how these traditions of religious art differ and what role art plays in religion today. How should we display religious art? Might it be a way of opening interfaith dialogue? has art itself become a kind of religion? It's my pleasure to introduce our three speakers for this evening. Maureen Chida Razvi is an art historian specializing in the art and architecture of Mughal South Asia. She is deputy curator of the Nasser Di Khalili Collection of Islamic Art and assistant editor for the International Journal of Islamic Architecture. She's published extensively and teaches widely on Mughal art, architecture, and urbanism. Ben Quash is Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. His research interests include pneumatology, metaphysics, and theological aesthetics, the role of the arts in stimulating theological engagement, modern philosophical and systematic theology, and Christian ethics. He's published extensively in all of these areas. Lee Vinia is an art historian and religious studies scholar. She works as a curator at the Museum Katerina Convent in Utrecht, the National Museum for Christian Art and Heritage in the Netherlands. She's the author of Beyond the Return of Religion, Art in the Postsecular, which was published by Brill in 2018. So Ben, perhaps you can start things off. How should we understand the relationship between art and religion?
1: Uh, well, it goes out saying that's an absolutely enormous question, but uh, I'm glad I have other people around the table, virtual table, to help me try and answer that. Both art and religion are umbrella terms, and that creates both problems and opportunities in both cases, because the things that are gathered under those two umbrellas are so diverse. And so the category religion itself is a relatively modern category, um, and the traditions of practice and belief that are grouped under the heading of religion don't always converge around certain common things. I mean, there are, there are often observable commonalities between them, but they often di- diverge very dra- dramatically from each other, and there's a danger in conflating them. The same is true of the arts, because they take such a huge variety of forms in terms of medium, whether they're performative, permanent or temporary, static, plastic, and so on. So that's a kind of preamble to say we have to tread with great care through this territory for two reasons. And then the, the relationship between these two quite baggy categories is a sort of fraught space or has been at various points in history. And one of the ways I like to explore this is through different words you might insert between the two to try and get at the ways they relate, the multiple ways they relate. So sometimes art is for religion. Um, religious traditions use art for particular purposes. It might channel devotion. It might, art might be precisely the embodiment of, of a god or a window onto a heavenly reality. It might be something you use in the context of worship. So that's art for religion. At other times, there's a sense in which art is used about religion. Religious um, practices and identities are explored with the help of art. And that's more of a kind of outsider perspective on religions that, that art has played a part in. There's also a possibility that art might be uh, art with religion in the sense that it, it uses religious motifs and symbols. And this is certainly true in a lot of modern and contemporary art. It uses religious sim- symbols and motifs to explore something that isn't necessarily religious. It's just that there's a kind of inherited language. The cross, for example, is, you know, or the Last Supper. The poster for this forum tonight was yet another meme of The Last Supper. Um, Those have proliferated everywhere because it's become a motif borrowed from religion to talk about any number of other things. And then there's the idea that art might be instead of religion. Um, And you hinted at that in saying that sometimes it's as if art has itself become something we revere, something that we gather around in order to explore the big questions of life, death, meaning and so on. So all of these things are in play. And that would be my initial slightly wordy answer to your question. Thanks, and then, ben. Sorry, and then there's the question of just iconoclasm. So so as it were, you can flip it and I, and I think about art, sorry, religion without art, as well as religion with art, because certain religious traditions, and Maureen might well have things to say about this, are very, very sort of suspicious of the idea of visual art, certainly at all.
0: Thanks, Ben. Uh, Lika or Maureen, do you want to jump in at the stage and, and maybe give us some other ideas about what we want to be thinking about over the next hour or so?
2: Yeah, I mean I I completely agree with what Ben just said sort of the cautionary um, uh, warning uh, in thinking about uh, religious art or or the relationship between art and religion um because both terms are so multifaceted. But I I think exactly that word relate or relationship between them is what makes it so interesting and what makes it sort of worth exploring how does does the relationship between art and religion take form and which forms can that take? And I I was thinking about how to sort of make this question manageable or the answer manageable. And I was thinking of of terms that you can use to sort of explore that relationship. And I think one term or one concept that's prevalent in both art and religion is the notion of creation. And I think that's really important in both understanding art and religion and also their interest in each other Um, you know the the artist creates out of materials but materials that he or she has to mold and and shape uh, in response to imagination or ideas interpretations that the artist has and um, that yeah, the sense of creation is of course extremely important in religion as well and that's also an area in which uh, the two have tried to come together Um, and a, a great example I think is the letter to artists of pope uh, john paul ii who wrote it in 1999 to sort of address artists and say well we it, it may seem like art and institutional religion don't have a lot to tell each other anymore we might have lost each other out of sight but actually creation is essential in in both our fields or both our domains the the mystery of creation the the flow that which cannot be grasped, that's so essential um, to making art, um, but also to believing, to faith. In that, that area, we can find each other again. And that was really sort of literally an invitation for artists to engage with religion uh, more again. So I think that notion is really interesting in exploring the relationship between art and religion, but also, and that is a kind of a, sort of a, a very positive approach. And I think the notion of boundaries is really interesting when it comes to the relationship between art and religion. There's always a sense of of boundary, whether it's uh, boundaries that are respected uh, by artists working within a particular uh, religious tradition, or whether these boundaries are completely broken, completely challenged, or maybe they are stretched a little, that the the edges are soft without meaning any disrespect. But there's always, uh, I think there's always sort of negotiation between what's possible, what's are we doing uh, any harm or are we, uh, our artists, by, by pushing the boundaries, are they actually also maybe reviving particular ideas or particular beliefs? Um, so I think that, that it's a contested area. What is the boundary? When is it, when is it too much and, and when is it still okay? But that's what makes, uh, makes the relationship so interesting, I think. And thinking about boundaries, if we look at older artworks that we really appreciate now, they are often artists in their times that crossed particular boundaries. And now they have become icons of art. So if, if, if we think about, I don't know, Caravaggio or Rembrandt or, or well, Artemisia Gentilesi, who now has that great exhibition in, in the National Gallery, you know, they were all shocking in their time, the, the stuff they made. And now they are magnificent icons and they, they are exemplary. So I think over time, yeah, the the notion of boundaries or or how boundaries are perceived changes. And I think that's one of the yeah, really interesting things about the relationship between art and religion.
3: Thanks, Lika. Marine? Um Honestly, I don't know how much more I can add to what both um, Ben and Lika have said, because those are both really fantastic kind of nuanced responses to this question about how art and religion um, relate to each other. So I think I'll keep my response brief and just say that when we think about in- institutional religion, I, think that I-, I do think that the two are intertwined. I think that Art becomes a visual expression of belief, and obviously religion uses art for that manner as well. It becomes a way, I think, for people to then relate to what they're being told of in in that religious sphere. And it becomes a way for them to, um, you know, more easily absorb what they're being taught. It becomes a method for teaching as well. So it's a very... You know, as Ben said at the very beginning, it's a very big question of how how arts and religion goes together. But I do think that they are linked in this very, you know, kind of inextricable way, especially when we do look at the, you know, kind of more formal tenets of, of religion and religious belief.
0: Thank you. Um, maybe we can follow up on that. I mean, you've begun to suggest some of the functions that art might serve within religious practice. I wonder if you might want to develop on that a little bit, Ben.
1: I wanted to pick up on what Lika was saying about boundaries and it raised a question for me about where you where you can position certain kinds of work uh, or tolerate them if you're depending where you come from, you know, it may be for religious reasons or indeed for other reasons that you may not want religious works in certain, you know, non-religious spaces. But that that question of the context is extremely interesting and the shift the shifting boundaries of what's acceptable where. And I totally take the point that some works that were shocking in their time are now, you know, fully incorporatable into spaces of worship when they, you know, they might not have been. But I still think there's an important distinction to be made between works that are maybe made for for contemplation over, over years, potentially centuries, and works that are maybe more like interventions or provocations. Um, and it might be that, you know... Uh, a religious institution like the Catholic Church, Lika mentioned John Paul II, you know, that that it might actually want to be involved with both. So, you know, there was a brief period when the Vatican had a pavilion at the Venice Biennale, this huge art fair, probably the world's kind of biggest showcase for contemporary artists um, in which different countries have their pavilions. And the Vatican decided to join that, but only brief, sadly, it's not currently part of it anymore, but I hope one day it will be. But the kind of works that they commissioned were quite adventurous and you probably wouldn't put them in a church. So there was a great kind of tabernacle made of pig offal, like a big tent and it was very beautiful, but you know, slightly smelly and and strange and you wouldn't probably worship in front of it or in it. It wasn't meant for that and it, and it wouldn't have lent itself to that. And in any case, it decayed quite quickly. You know, it was already sort of, uh, by the end of the summer, it was it was not long, no longer what it had been, shall we say. So that compared with say uh, Shiraze Hushiari's beautiful window in St. Martin the Fields in London, which I hope will be there literally for centuries, which rewards long contemplation by those who worship there as well as those who visit and sit and look at it for a long period of time. Now, both of those have value. Both of those have been um, commissioned by institutional churches, you know, religious bodies, but they serve different functions. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about contexts permit different sorts of art. In the case of the, the work at the Biennale, which I should say is by a Macedonian artist based in Britain called Elpida Hadzi Basilova, that's a work that sort of ambushes you because you don't expect it. And then you discover what it's made of and it's even more surprising and so on. It's all A lot of it is about surprise as well as beauty, surprising beauty. But um, works that ambush you are also religiously important because a sort of religious art that only gives you what you already expect and want quickly becomes kitsch you know it's just sort of a reward of your expectations and that shouldn't be what religious art does it seems to me it should actually want to take you somewhere else just as good religion should it should be transformative not merely confirming where you already are so there's a role for these sorts of art within religion as well as outside it
0: can we be prescriptive about what good religious art should do you seem to be suggesting we can
1: yes but there won't be one prescription so i think there There could be a sort of list of prescriptions, some of which include challenging you or provoking you. That that's a meaningful thing to happen in a religious context Uh, and not just meaningful, but a positively. uh, Well, it depends on the provocation, I suppose. (laughs) But, you know, um, if it's never happening, something's wrong. I'll put it that way around. But so is so is contemplation. So is the sense of the unifying power of art to bring people together around certain sorts of uh, image. You know, entire architectural schemes have been created to to give the sense that people are being built together through material objects and architecture, built together into a body of people who share things. And that's an incredibly important function. And you know the list could go on, and maybe we'll come back to some of the other functions it might have. So there are different things you could prescribe, and we'll, and several of them would be good.
2: Yeah, I think the the what you just said about that, if it it only confirms what you already know, then it might become kitsch. I think that also has to do with you know visual arts. It, it tries to it, it visualizes that which is perhaps unimaginable or ineffable in religious terms. And I think if if art has the ability or an artist created something that has the ability to present you with something that from your frame of reference, you would have never come up with yourself, that is so surprising or new, that actually may really give you new insights in how you experience as a believer how you experience faith or how you understand a particular religious concept or uh, ritual and i think that that is one of the uh, most interesting and also yeah <laughs> almost maybe mysterious functions of art if an artist is able to do that but of course that that completely depends on also the frame of reference of the viewer so i think in that relationship between art and religion that we were talking about before, the spectator or the viewer or the believer, the person engaging with the artwork, I think is crucial as well. And, yeah, the, the the way how art can invite a, a person to, or an individual or a collective group, maybe, to experience a sense of transcendence or maybe an outer-worldly experience, uh, I think that's that's really important in thinking about this.
3: So certainly. And also the idea for, for imagery to not remain stagnant, you know, building off of what you just said, like, so also, you know, you mentioned the Artemisia show, and, you know, her Judith and Holofernes paintings are so incredible and that's a theme which was you know consistently repeated by artists and then you know it has this you know I, I don't want to say a stock image but when we get to the paintings that she produces they are shocking um you know to a wide variety of people and it's you know for you know for the reasons she had they they are more violent. You're showing the woman in a more potent way than you have before, and that movements of the image, that progression of the image, um, I think is really, you know, really important, and that can help move how people think about um, the representations that they're seeing as well.
1: Can I just um, say that one of the things I've been really interested in, in, or well, I've been involved in in the last few weeks is is thinking about the. Uh, Raphael cartoons that are in the Victorian Albert Museum they've just been well they would have opened in November if it hadn't been for the for the lockdown but uh, these are enormous works called cartoons they were the designs Raphael made for a series of tapestries 10 tapestries for the Sistine Chapel in Rome and the cartoons have become you know some of the great treasures of uh, English collections you know and they're actually part of uh, the Queen's own collection but they're displayed in a sp- special room dedicated to the at the V and they tell the stories mm-hmm key episodes from the stories of Peter and Paul. What's interesting about them is that they, you know, they were the product of, as to go back to your question, Danielle, of a really specific, quite prescriptive commission. So Pope Leo X wanted these images to reinforce um, an image of papal authority deriving from the first two great apostles martyred in Rome, Peter and Paul. So they had a kind of incredibly prescriptive um, commission attached to them. But what happens with all works of art is they, 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 they float free of the intentions of the patron or indeed of the artist and they start to behave differently and do different things because of the new audiences and the new context so when they're in the vna well th- there's a history before that you know then henry the henry the wants a full set for himself he's the king who breaks away from the pope he breaks away from rome so he hasn't diff- he's finding a different set of meanings in them who knows exactly what but you know that's interesting. Charles I also has an, his own set made. Um, and then suddenly they're in a museum. And the big thing they have to say to v visitors is that they are playing a part in the story of art. And they're used by budding artists to come and kind of practice on, to learn from Raphael, to sit at the feet of Raphael and learn. And whether they're about Peter and Paul isn't really that important at all. It's the fact that they're by Raphael. And that means that you can ask a question now as they reopen in 2020 or sadly 2021 now, what else can they mean? Because if they've meant these different things to these different people in different contexts through history, what else can they mean? And it might be that you come back to finding some of the religious meanings of them really interesting, without suddenly sort of signing up for the original full papal narrative that went with their commission but you know they mean more than any of those one things and I think that's really interesting when we think about any work of art
2: that's the great thing if these artworks are maybe even temporary but still if they become part of the public domain at some point because then these sort of these different meanings can also be brought into conversation with one another I experienced that with uh, a new podcast that I'm part of, which is about Bible stories. And every episode, there's a Bible story uh, that's central. And then there are different artistic disciplines that have responded to this Bible story that are discussed. So there's music, literature, visual arts, and film. And every episode, there's also a theologian part of it. And we actually, I know these Bible stories because I know the artworks predominantly. Um, The theologian knows these Bible stories because... He reads about them in the Bible and he preaches them. And we actually came, you know, after recording some episodes, we came to the conclusion that we actually learned so much also from each other because of all these different perspectives that we have going into the story and the different artworks. That would also be great if the v or, you know, any other venue could achieve that in bringing these different perspectives together. And there's always something to learn for, for everyone, but that the richness of these uh, these artworks also come to the fore.
0: Thanks, Lika. I'd like to come back to you, Maureen, and, and perhaps think about um, how we know if an artwork is religious. Is it always obvious?
3: No, I, I don't think it is. Um. So on the question of, is art always religious? So I think that in a very dogmatic sense, for say, to, to say that art is religious, I think that it has to be created in some way for, for worship, for an act of worship. But I do think it's a very great area. And I wanted to use these two um, images to to highlight that. So on the left-hand side of the screen is the, an image of the uh, Soleimaniya Mosque in Istanbul. It's one of the great Ottoman mosques. It's a space that was built, you know, for worship. So built for a religious function, all the accoutrements that go inside of it, it's all the decoration inside of it, it's all part of this wider construct to aid in, in worship. So, you know, taking a very broad definition of what art is to include, you know, architecture and material culture, you can have productions which are very much created for religious reasons. But then if you look at the image on the right of the screen, which is a painting from 16th century Iran, which depicts the Prophet Muhammad's ascent to heaven during his miraculous night journey. We see the Prophet Muhammad on his steed, Barak. He's flying through the air. He's surrounded by angels. There's this incredible flaming halo around his head. It's a scene depicting an event, a mystical event, miraculous event of his life. It evokes a sense of wonder and a sense of mysticism. You can't help but kind of contemplate as you look at it but it was made for inclusion within a book of poetry it was not made for a religious reason it was not made for a religious text and so for an item like that can we define it as religious you know as as an artwork and i think this is where we do we do get into a gray area because something like that could indeed invite religious contemplation but i think then we're entering entering into a scenario where it's very much on the part of the viewer what they are actually seeing and perceiving when they are looking at an object if they perceive it as religious or if they just perceive it as a as a thing of beauty in this particular context, it, it very much is the case of what um, a viewer reads into an image when they're looking at it. So to, to say that we can define art as being religious, I think, can be quite, uh, quite tricky at times, actually.
1: Can I come in there? I think that's really interesting because I the, the, in a way that this presses for a distinction between the content of a work and the process of of making art at all and this picks up on one of Lika's points um, early on about creativity and creation that you know in a sense that the content of a work might be one of the things that determines whether we think of it as religious although as you're saying marine even even something that has an you know clearly a religious um, subject matter may may not be made for devotional purposes uh, as that um, illumination isn't but even if it were not an image of the prophet or any religious figure or or episode there's also a sense in which the the fact of making things at all and seeking to communicate through made objects and seeking to share them with each other is religiously interesting so the fact we we communicate I mean, the same, you can say all the same things, I suppose, about language, but um visual art as a, as a very distinctive kind of language is religiously interesting, mm. because we seek, we seek to convey things to each other through it, yeah. and we build community through it, we make connections with each other through it, and we gesture, we gesture through it towards mm. things that we care about. And to say that is, that isn't religious you know, even if it's fun or, you know, even if it's a comic book or, you know, we're still exploring what we care about and Hmm. desire and fear and all of those things. And these are all, these are all religiously important or potentially religiously important. So it's as hard to say that anything isn't religious, if you like, as it is to definitely say that something is.
3: Yeah. And and it brings us then back to the question of what, you know, how do we define an object as being religious? Um, And I was just thinking as well, also of, when we're all able to travel again, um, you know, and going to places like India, Southeast Asia, these places that have this grand, um, you know, temple tradition. These are structures which are plastered with images of the gods, uh, sculptural forms, painted forms, and specifically thinking of the sculptural, you know, imagery, these are not just representations of the deity, but when they are being used in a religious sense, they are the deity. Like the deity is there within the sculpture. And contrast that with then, you know, images of these same figures, which are made for a tourist market. You know, it, it's the same image, but it has a completely different purpose in its making, um, depending for, you know, obviously the audience it's intended for, as opposed to the audience within the uh, the temple space. Um. So it's a very, yeah, it's a really interesting question of how how religion comes into the production of items or objects or images
2: yeah I think so too and and I think it's been in response to what you said I think all art or all creative work can be interesting from the perspective of a scholar of religion but then there's also on the other hand sort of the intentions or the reasons, why people make things, or why artists make their work, and to come back to the uh, the Biennale Pavilion of the Vatican. No, there are two things that are interesting about that. What you said about the the artworks there not necessarily being proper for worship or for sacred sites. That was also one of the really. Uh, that was strongly emphasized also in the catalogue and by the people who organized it, that the art that was made was specifically made for these the, the secular side that, of the Biennale and definitely not sacred art because that was a wholly other category. And I think that... Distinction also really played through in the the artists. Some of the artists were really strong about their artistic freedom that they had maintained in contributing to the pavilion. And of course, it was a commission from the Vatican. But they were really uh, really emphasizing, well, I'm I'm not religious or I'm not uh, restricted by any of the the terms uh, that were set by the commissioner. And I think there's a really interesting tension there. That that artworks that are can be really interesting from the perspective of scholars but then the people who make it or the people who interact with it might be very uh sort of strongly against that notion of religion or religious or their affiliation with religion um and i think that's that's yeah that's really interesting in calling art religious uh yeah that role of uh, or these different perceptions uh, are are really interesting. So maybe there's not, <laughs> there we come back to it again, there's not one definitive answer to this uh, to this question either, because the, the, the whole notion of religion is is so contested.
1: Just to come in again on that, I think the the interesting thing about the, the particular work I referred to, which was called Haruspex, made of, of offal, was that that distinction, even if the Vatican wanted to make it, and even if the artists wanted to make it, between, you know, religious art is wholly other from Biennale art. It mm-hmm. actually broke down it didn't work neatly because for a start the brief given to the artists was a text of scripture so there, it was the opening chapter of saint john's gospel the word became flesh so that's mm-hmm. partly why she made it out of flesh um so that was interesting so it was already a kind of response to a scriptural text she was partly inspired by um the extraordinary ghent altarpiece and and especially the central image of the mystic lamb on an altar um and so her structure which was quite kind of you know quadrantal if that's a word based around a sort of quadrant uh was partly derived from an altarpiece an incredibly famous altarpiece and the space because it was a canopied space felt like a tabernacle Mm -hmm. so some people actually responded to it as they were inside it with in some of the same bodily ways they might if they had entered a place of worship so in a way the distinction deconstructed itself And I thought that was fascinating. And and it reminds me of another very similar experience, which was uh, back in 2016, when my my then colleague Aaron Rosen, who's now in the States, curated something he called Stations 2016, based around the traditional Christian Stations of the Cross, so Christ's journey to be crucified, uh, which has been a a traditional kind of Christian devotion. but. The 14 stations that he created were all over London, and some of them were in art galleries, and some of them were works of art in public spaces like Parliament Square, and some were specially commissioned contemporary works, again, sometimes outside and sometimes inside. And so if you wanted to follow them, you, you had to move all over the city. But what was so interesting was that you could be doing it as somebody who was pursuing it as a devotional exercise, praying in front of each of them. You could be visiting it as an exhibition. In doing either, you moved in and out of secular and sacred spaces. So sometimes Sometimes you were in churches to see the works and sometimes you were outdoors and sometimes you were in galleries and even more weirdly the most obviously religious works amongst the 14 were in the galleries and the most contemporary works which wouldn't have necessarily looked at all religious were in the churches so everything kind of broke down and I think that new permeability between the sacred and the secular is mm-hmm. really interesting and shows that making these neat distinctions doesn't work always.
0: Maureen I'd like to come back to you and and perhaps uh, we could start thinking about the the role of art in religious practice in particular
3: um, so i'm going to focus this from from my perspective on arts in the islamic sense and so when we're talking about the role of arts within the religious practice of islam again giving quite a broad definition to arts i think that it has a really important part to play the prophet muhammad is supposed to have said that god is beautiful and loves beauty And so there is then this idea that when items are being created for, you know, for for worship and for devotion, that the more beautiful they are, the more, well, the better it is. And so when we're talking about, you know, kind of architectural space, the space for devotion, we then have parts of, you know, mosques or parts of structures, which are inherently, you know, beautiful in their creation, and then others which are given more of an enhanced um, aesthetic quality to them. And so just an example of some of these bases, the top, left picture that you see on this slide is the Bad Shahi Masjid in Lahore. So this is the great congregational mosque that was built by the Mughal Emperor Alamgir there. And what we're seeing in this picture is the prayer hall um, and part of the courtyard. So it allows for the functional use of the space. It allows for the gathering of the Muslim community in order for them to carry out their acts of worship there. Within a mosque, you will have um, a mihrab, or multiple mihrabs, which is a niche in the wall, signifying the direction Muslims are supposed to face when they pray, because wherever you are in the world, Muslims are supposed to face towards Mecca. And the mihrab and the mihrab space tends to be the most, you know, kind of elaborately decorated part of a mosque. And on the bottom left image there is a um, mihrab from the Ilkhanid period um, in Iran, commissioned by the um, ruler Al-Jaitu. And it, it's... It's hard to tell from this image, but it's elaborately beautiful. Um, It's decorated in carved stucco with these really fantastic geometric and floral motifs and calligraphy. It's a proper, you know, work of art in and of itself. And it was made for the Winter Prayer Hall of the Friday Mosque in Isfahan. So it's just one example of this elaboration of aesthetic and of beauty in that particular artistic uh, site. In congregational mosques, you'll tend to also have in the inclusion of minbars, which are the pulpits. And the Ottoman examples tend to be quite architectural. So a lot of craftsmanship goes into their production. It looks like a miniature building in some ways and very elaborately carved, very beautifully carved as well. And then you have items which are created for personal worship and, and personal devotion. And here you see, again, this enhancement of the aesthetic quality of these items. And I, I should put a caveat here that these are all items created for an elite you know, patron. But across the board, when items like this are made for worship, you know, for people from all backgrounds and different classes of societies and different classes of wealth, um, you still have uh, an an aesthetic enhancement to these items. So looking at items for personal use, uh, for devotion, um, the Quran, obviously, the, um, the Holy Book of Islam. And on the left, this fantastic Mamluk Quran which was um, made for the Sultan Baybars, and it's opening the opening that you see here are the opening illuminated pages. And if we come back to that idea that God is beautiful and loves beauty, we're seeing this enhancement of in this example, the Word of God is being aesthetically enhanced in this uh, particular example. Through not only the elaborate calligraphy, which there's several styles um, evidence on these two pages, but also the luxurious materials which are being used. Gold leaf uh, and liquid gold has been employed. Lapis lazuli is the base for the blue paint. So really expensive materials and luxurious materials. The paper is a very high quality and has been burnished. So it has a real sheen to it. So the whole book in and of itself is a luxury production, but very very much for a religious purpose. On the right side of the screen is an example of a prayer mat. So uh, Muslims tend to have these prayer mats that they um, that they pray on, and um, they can be made of material like this one, which is cotton and it has silk on it, or it can be, you know, you see velvet ones, all sorts of different materials used, but they in and of themselves are then enhanced as well to portray, you know, the kind of beauty of the art, and then something as simple as the prayer beads, the, the does beads, can be made from really very basic materials to something like this, which is using a much more finer material. This one is made of mother of pearl. And so we're seeing this enhancements of the, um, you know, the religious art in this instance in order to create that, well, the, the actual practicing of the religion is incorporating all these different um, objects and, and spaces and elements. So we see, you know, that they're beautiful objects, but these are actually functional in and of themselves. So I think we can say then that arts in this instance is very much um, projecting and, and being used in that religious sense.
1: It's very interesting how so much beauty as you say and so much detail and so many um, luxurious materials are used but at the same time in service of a certain kind of desire to withhold not to exactly to withhold but not not to make you mistake them for the object that you're meant to be directing your intentions towards. Mm. So
3: if anything
1: they're
3: meant to help enhance that you know that that spiritual devotion so for example the the prayer mat the design on that you know you can relate it to the design of a mosque it had a very architectural frame to it and then in the center there was the arch of the mihrab and then um the other prominent feature of that design was you know imagery relating to the gardens of paradise so the cypress trees and, and the floral motifs so yeah exactly that these are beautiful objects in and of themselves, but they are meant to, you know, kind of channel the devotional act, which is being undertaken.
1: And if you rest with them, you've made a mistake in some way, because the god whos who isn't who it is not possible to render visually is precisely their true object. So mm-hmm. they're hyper visual, but in being hyper visual, they're trying to take you beyond the visual to the, the worship of the unvisualizable. And yeah. I find that really fascinating. So so the, the niche is is an empty space, but it's fabulously dense with visual, you know, with visual decoration. It's
3: a great way of putting it. It
1: was interesting
3: also that. to
0: see um, where those objects are now. So your your references, it was one of them was in the v
3: one of them is in the British Museum. I mean, yeah. how does that affect our experiencing of them? I mean, if you were to see them in the museums now and not know their functional purpose, you're, you're looking at an object and you're admiring it for its aesthetic quality. These are magnificent objects. Like I said, I was just showing items of elite patronage. But they then obviously lose the importance of the functional purpose from what, for which they were made, if you are not aware of that. So you're seeing them as these beautiful aesthetic pieces. But unless you are then given that functional context within the museum space,
2: you, you won't know well yeah I think that's one of the 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 main challenges also for the museum where I'm working in but i'm 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 sure also for the museums where these uh, these objects that you discussed are are in now because there are there are so many different ways of, of approaching these objects there's the the aesthetics there's the 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 histor- history and the historical context in which they were made and in which they have functioned and there's their theological or spiritual significance and i think these three ideally should always be in balance with one another but then uh, if i also think about the museum where i work it's really a fine line if you want to convey that spiritual Significance or that function that they have. How to do that? How to how to put that on display? I remember we once talked about an exhibition or a, a theme. How to show objects that are uh, that people pray with, and so for instance the prayer mat. But how do how do you how do you put that on display? How do you convey what people experience while they're using these objects mm. and 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 while they're praying? And one of the questions that also came to the forest is then: So should we then also have a room where people can pray? Uh, Just as a sort of a hypothetical question, because if if prayer is the topic that seems to be sort of a logical part of it to actually have the activity there as well. But that also means that you put people who if if people would like to use that room, you put these people on display while they're praying. So it's there. There needs to be something sort of in in between that, having the people actually do the, the, the perform the practice and having the object as merely an aesthetic object. Um, and I think that is always, um, uh, yeah, sort of a field of negotiation. And I think ideally uh, in a museum context, you take visitors along in that decision process. So if there's a reason why you only can or want to focus on aesthetics, I think you still need to make people aware of that which you are not touching upon for whatever reason. Maybe it's just purely practical or maybe there are other. there's not enough knowledge about it. Um, well,
3: and I think also there's, there's also the other, Um, you know, the other elements, which is when we're talking about these objects, we're seeing them for what they are and for what they were used for and being made for these purposes. But I think it's also really important to think of the people who are making them and the Mm -hmm. process through which they're made, because these don't just come about as fully formed creations. And so then you get into really interesting questions about how the items were made, who was making them, who are they being made for? And again, if, if we think of the prayer mat, that the process behind that is incredibly complicated. There are multiple different ways of um, dying, which go, went into the creation of that one object. And like with the Quran, you have not only the illuminator making the designs, but then the calligrapher, you have the paper maker, you have the binder. So we see these, again, we're seeing these as isolated objects, but there's so much which goes into their production. And when we add that layer of religious importance to them, I, I never want to see the, the artisans and the craftsmen kind of taken out of the equation but in some cases it's, it's kind of inevitable depending on what
2: the focus of the object being there is. That's true and, and if there is a way of including these people who are involved in making them I think you also emphasize that it's a living practice mm-hmm. um, and it's an object that's be- that belongs to a tradition That's not only from the past, but it's still very much alive today. And I think that's also really important in in thinking about how to curate religious art or religious heritage in general Mm -hmm. of how to, I think, continuously create a connection between these historical objects or older objects from a, a religious past to the present. And maybe... Well, for for sure, the religious present looks completely different than it did in the Middle Ages or or the modern time. But I think the the, the present and the past can really inform each other. And if if you, for instance, really only have these objects presented in sort of a chronological way or in a particular time frame and look at their aesthetics, you're kind of denying the fact that, you know, there once was spiritual significance attributed to these objects and people still do that today in a similar manner, maybe to similar objects or different ones, but it's alive. And I think that's that's something that a museum can do, but it's it's a challenge as well. And it's it's easily forgotten because it's, it's often much easier to think about, okay, chronology, you know, what happened first, what happened then, who made it and what is special about it. But to really sort of make that connection between the past and present, I think really also enlivens the collection displays for visitors as well. And you really sort of invite them to engage with that as well. Lika, do you
0: perhaps want to speak to the exhibition that you're working on at the moment?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. I'm currently working on an exhibition about uh, the biblical figure of Mary Magdalene, um, which will open in February 21. And in that exhibition, we actually really made a very conscious choice to present historical art and contemporary art in a sort of a trans historical way. So it's it's all a mingle together. And um that's really to yeah, what I just what I just said to reinforce the fact that Mary Magdalene is not a figure that was only looked at or dealt with in the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance, but still her place in the collective imagination is still very prominent today. And uh, yeah, that's something we really want to uh, to reinforce. And as well as her multiplicity. she is a figure that has many faces and, and is interpreted in many different ways throughout history. And I think it's really important to show all these faces in addition to one another, how they emerged. and. Well, I think what's really interesting about her is is that, or her her persona, is that the development of all these different faces, the old images have not been replaced by the new. So the 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 image of the uh, first witness to the resurrection, the the fallen woman, the uh, hermit uh, living in the, in the cave in south of France, the religious, uh, uh, how do I say, the the, the, the beloved disciple of Jesus, uh, all these potentially. The, the, the wife of Christ. All these faces exist next to each other and that's also something we really wanted to uh, or we're really going to emphasize in the exhibition that there's not sort of one definitive answer to who, who was Mary Magdalene to that question but that, that multiplicity is actually what makes her so interesting and also what, what still inspires artists today um, so we really have some great combinations of, of older artworks and newer ones, yeah, which really show that.
0: Thank you. One of the um, impossible questions with which I opened the session was about interfaith dialogue and whether art might be able to stimulate that in some way. Ben, do you want to respond to that?
1: Yes, I think it can. In fact, a practice I, I've been involved with for a long time is something called scriptural reasoning where people from different religious traditions sit down together and look at their sacred texts um, in a conversational mode and in recent months actually I've begun to think that the format um, of that is both deeply religious because many religious traditions you know have modes of collective scriptural study within their own traditions in Judaism for example Hevruta study is where you know Two people will sit, often two, sometimes more, but will sit and really kind of argue over what a text means, not because uh, there's an arrival point where you determine its meaning and then that's it. It's because the discussion itself is the, the point I mean, that is the good product of the conversation, is that there is a conversation. So our our tendency to want to arrive at kind of final meanings is denied in these more open conversational modes of engagement. And it's also a feature of ancient Greek and Roman civilization, the idea of the symposium, where people will sit around and multiple voices will interact about a shared topic of interest. And again, the way these were recorded by people like Plato was not as, as were decisions made by a meeting, but precisely the conversation was what was recorded so what's transmitted down the centuries are dialogues as dialogues not as just a, st- a series of steps towards a decision or a final statement now scriptural reasoning has that quality but across religious boundaries so not just within them and I think you can do that with the visual art of different religious traditions so w- one of the things I notice about the way people often talk about art is it's less there's a less of a sense of pressure to come up with an answer because art isn't the kind of thing you have an answer to it's something you talk about so the conversation is partly what art generates and you know you're doing it right because the conversation is lively and part of what you want to then sort of bring other people into is the conversation not to say you know Caravaggio's painting means this just go away and remember that and you don't even have to look at the painting ever again um it's quite the opposite of that um, so perhaps, you know, just as much as sacred texts and maybe even more works of art can become sites, locations of conversation across traditions and with a sort of freedom that, that gets opened up by the fact that you don't have to arrive at an answer. Mm-hmm. So I, I really do think that it's a place of meeting, if you like, for different religious groups.
3: No, I, I completely agree with that. And um, so if you look at the top left um, painting, that is a... Mughal painting, so done at the Mughal courts in um, South Asia, most likely in Lahore, commissioned by the Mughal emperor of a very Christian scene. Um, It's the descent from the cross. We see Christ being taken down by three people. The Virgin Mary has collapsed at the foot of the cross. Angels are hovering above in the air, and there are assorted other people, including Mary Magdalene, you know, around the, the ground as well. And this is a copy of a European print that was at the Mughal court because the Mughal Emperor Akbar had invited Jesuit priests to his court to actually be a part of interfaith dialogues that he was having take place um, between himself These Jesuit priests, Hindu Brahmins, you know Sufi Sufi mystics. So we have these events which would take place where you know religion was being discussed, and then we have the visual production which went along with that, where the interest is in the image. And and I mean I have to say as well that you know in Islam Christ is a prophet as well, so he he is of religious importance. But when these kind of works are being made. It's for the interest in the in the image um, and and the story more than anything else. So art absolutely, um, you know, works as a point of um, discussion and of meeting of the religions, both in in very positive ways and unfortunately, you know, in in kind of contemporary society in very negative ways as well, I have to say. But is absolutely a a point of dialogue and, and hopefully more for the good than ill.
0: I'm aware of the time, so I would like to take some questions if we can. So I think we had one about the idea that making itself is a spiritual or religious practice. What would you say about the idea of making, the act of making itself is a spiritual or religious practice?
1: I'm not an artist myself so I, I'd be hesitant to speak as though I were one but I, I do know from friends who are artists that, that their processes of making can take on for them a quality of um, I don't quite know how to put it um, you know almost transcendental experience so that by that I mean the sense that something is happening through them and not only something that they control so that they're sort of becoming a channel or a conduit for something that itself is seeking to be made through their skill and that I find that very interesting. I think lots of different academic disciplines would, would would want to give different accounts of what that is. You know, neuroscientists have something to say about nearly everything these days. And, you know, and no doubt psychologists and all sorts of other people would. But I, I do think that's something very interesting. One's sense of control over one's own agency gets suspended when making something. Um, Thanks,
0: Dan. There's actually a really interesting follow-up question, which I think links up quite well about authorship. Um, so, the question of authorship looms large in contemporary art. In contrast, it seems that historically authorship was minimized through intentional anonymity, extensive collaboration, etc. Does the emphasis put upon authorship in contemporary art preclude our ability to see an artwork as religious in the same way that historical peoples may have done?
3: Um, I don't. I mean, like you might be better placed to answer, especially with your exhibition coming up, but I... I don't know that it would. I'm thinking of, you know, like, like Rothko's Stations of the Cross, for example. I mean, like somebody who is as famous as that and whose works are as, as famous as they are. But still, you know, they, they were created with that intention in mind. They're, they're, you know, they were placed in a chapel. I think then that spiritual importance that can be attached to them, I don't think it diminishes just because then we, we equate the work with an artist as well.
2: Yeah, I think there's a kind of a danger in seeing artists themselves as iconic or as as genius, um, which, which we've done for a long time. And actually, this week, I think there was an interview with the director of the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, uh, one of the most... Uh, important contemporary art museums in the Netherlands. And they have on their, uh, I think on the, the facade of the museum, it says, meet the icons. And he said something like, okay, that's, that's history. We, gotta get, we have to get rid of uh, being in, in awe or idolizing uh, the, the artists themselves. It's about it has to be about the, the, the histories that we can tell with them about the context. It has to be you know it's it's not no longer about the canon. Uh, so I think there's actually a shift in going on or going to happen. I guess the the MoMA uh, rearrangement is also a good example of that. Yeah, in the art world, the, that focus on the individual artist and no matter what they what they made just anything they touched is 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 amazing that uh, conviction is kind of disappearing a little bit and i think that's that's a good thing uh but still yeah i I fully agree with mechreen what you said about how even those big names that we've we've looked at for so long as as icons um they can still have they still can have made artworks that are fully intended, or maybe not intended, but experienced as religious as well. Thanks. Let's
0: take another question. Um, So with built forms and public displays of religious practice, are there any signs of the impact of climate change in terms of access and conservation?
3: Oh, wow. That's a huge question. I'm going to say yes and leave it at that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be flippant, but it is. Um, it, it's a very, very large question, and I, and I say yes because I feel like I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. But I, I would imagine that, yeah, absolutely, there is going to be, if if not already, there will be problems around built space and urbanization and places which are used for worship, and um, uh, I, I think we will you know, see an impact on those at some point, if we're not already seeing them now. Like I said, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I I would assume so.
0: Thanks. Let's, Let's take one more. So where does didactic art fit into this conversation? Can art which was made to convey a specific message or story be good art?
1: I think it's very hard to find art that actually really ever does that, even if the reason it was commissioned was to do that. In most cases, the very making of a work of art creates Um, a multivalency a sort of possibility a set of possibilities that to go back to something I said earlier the artist and even the artist can't control let alone the patron so you know the church just to speak about the Christian tradition the church has a long history of wanting works of art to do very precise things and they hardly ever do even if you chuck them out and say that that's not that's not fulfilling the purpose we asked you to fulfil, and and that it is partly because, as we've said, um, visual imagery is not um, a set of propositions on a page, and so it will behave in ways that take. It's different audiences, different sets of viewers in all kinds of unpredictable directions. And that's part of what's so wonderful about it. So I would even question whether there is a purely didactic art. However, there are some forms of art that try to be. And I think to that, I would say that the art of um, indicative statements or even imperatives is less interesting on the whole than the art that asks questions, the interrogative kind of arts forms of art the kind of art that explores desire and the kind of art that conjectures alternative possibilities and that sense of you know art being a window onto questions conjectures and desires is likely to be the art that people keep coming back to rather than the art that just wants to deliver a message.
0: Thank you, we've got two minutes left, so I want to squeeze in one last question. So art and religion both require community if they are to be appreciated or if one is to practise. But in the age of TV, streaming, media channels, et cetera, we're losing a sense of community. And if Europe, the US, the UK, et cetera, is becoming more secular, what does this mean for art and religion? Is fragmentation
2: or this loss a threat or a chance to respond or reinvent itself? Yeah, I think it's definitely true that times are much more individualized and focused on the individual than before. But that doesn't mean that artists or individuals are not engaged with religion. Um, so it may be in a completely different way. Uh, but still, there is, through art, I think, the possibility to, even in your on your very own, to feel part of something that goes beyond yourself. And whether that's a religious tradition that you are... A part of or that you know of or if it's yeah maybe a sense of art history that you can place a particular artwork in in a larger tradition uh but i think that sense of yeah feeling part of something that's bigger than yourself is still there so i think, think that's a
0: really positive note for us to finish on <laughs> sorry we are out of time <laughs> Th- thank you all for joining us thanks to our speakers um, i hope you have a lovely break And um, we'll see you after Christmas for our next round of Forum for Philosophy events.